Good man. Oh, Catalyst, what a good day, isn't it? What a good day. Yeah, let's thank the Lord again. It's just fun. You know what? Uh, one of the things that's kind of been a theme, and we didn't intend it to be, but one of the things that, that we've had today is, is kind of this constant theme that we have to understand that we're in this place, but this is not the end place, right? In fact, do me a favor. I just want you to turn to the people on your right and your left, and I want you to say this. We have not arrived. Yes, we're in a better place than we were, but we have not arrived. Go ahead. Do that right now. We continue our series in 1 Thessalonians, and why I think this is, I am afraid I'm going to step on this and squish it. So I'm going to... Now see, Nate, that's a southern word, squish, Uh, and you got to say it with that. Paul writes to a church that is a new church plant. They're like us. They're just not that old in the faith. And one of the things that we find out about Paul and his teaching to the Thessalonians, and it's teaching for us, is that Paul never speaks in a language or uses words that talk about just maintaining he never uses words. It's not, it's not even in his vocabulary that he begins to direct new believers in becoming the status quo. He is always challenging them to move forward in their faith. He's always exhorting them to never be satisfied with just where they are. And so this morning, I really want to talk a little bit about how do you and I live forward in our faith? How do we continue moving ahead? And Paul just gives to us, this is not going to be a long teaching. Some of you take a deep breath and relax. Um, But Paul says some things. Paul declares for us that there are three things that should be some foundational pieces of who we are as believers. First thing he says is verse 10, that we are holy and righteous and blameless. I don't know about you, but when I first read that verse, that seemed like a tall order, doesn't it? You know what I mean? When you're holy, and you're righteous, and you're blameless. But you know what? Before we become, uh, have a sense of being overcome with that, or feeling like we will never measure up to that, let's just simply go through these words and move towards them. He says that you and I should be holy. The word means that you and I are to be devout. It means that you and I are to have a deep commitment, not only in who we are, but in our behavior towards God. It means that you and I are being set apart for God's use. I mean, literally, we understand that when Christ comes into our life, something has happened that has set us apart. It is the person in the presence of Jesus. And he says God's involvement in our lives. And and, and, in all honesty, in other words, it means not that we're called to be perfect in God. But it means that our lives are absolutely to be distinctly marked by the presence of Jesus in our lives. You know, I, I remember Ellen and I loved to watch uh, romantic comedies. And there was one starring Amanda Burns, and it was titled, What a Girl Wants. And it was about a young woman who had never met her biological father. She discovers where he is. She discovers who he is, only to find out that he is this very wealthy aristocrat in London. A man of high standing. Unbeknownst to her mom, she saves money and able to fly over and meet him, and unbeknownst to him too. 
And she arrives, and as she meets him and greets him, she begins to begin to live in his aristocratic life. And she tries to become this aristocratic daughter that she thinks he needs her to be. And in the meantime, as she's trying to be somebody she's not, she absolutely positively loses herself. That is, until, until one young man who fancied her asked her this question. Why do you try so hard to fit in when you were absolutely made to stand out? I want you to know that is exactly what it means when the Apostle Paul challenges you and me to live a holy life. It means that friends in Jesus, we weren't meant to be like everybody else. It means that you and I were not meant to live to please people. And in a way that, always, that we always fit in. No, it meant that we have a life that's set apart by the presence and power of Jesus. And then Paul says something else. Not that you're just holy, but that you're righteous. You're righteous. You know what that word means? It means that you and I are ethical. And we're moral. And how we treat and interact with other people. It really means that Christ calls us, Christ empowers us, Christ encourages us to live in a higher place in regards to how you and I relate to people and engage other people. Listen, let's, let's just take the golden rule as our guide. Matthew 7, 12, Jesus says in the NLT, He says, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. You ever wondered why that rule is golden? You, under, you ever wonder why there's such importance really bestowed upon it? I mean, the truth is, friends, it's because Jesus says this is how you and I should relate and interact with others. And let me take a poll. How many of us in the difficulties that we've had in life, the struggles, the, the difficult times, difficult situations in our lives, how many times has that been associated with how you and I relate to others? It's a large percentage of the brokenness in our lives. It's a large percentage of the brokenness in our communities. Jesus just says, I want you to know something. Treat people. Just start treating people the way you want to be treated with love and kindness and goodness. I love this because there's not a lot of theologi theological jargon to it, is it? Paul just says, if you want to make a difference... If you want to make a difference in how you live and how you love other people, then just treat them the way you think Christ would treat them. You see, it's, it's golden because it's so simple. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to live this one out. It's not geometry. It's not calculus. Honest to goodness, it's just common sense that says, listen, let's be different because Christ has made us different. And in that difference, let's begin to love people the right way. Here's the deal. In any and every situation, let's treat people like we want to be treated. You see, we can be good. We can be kind. We can be fair. We can be honest. We can be moral, we can be ethical, 
And those are all things, those are all things that the fruit of the Spirit can bring to our lives. Let's be not only holy, set apart for Him, let's be righteous, Catalyst. Let's be righteous in how we interact and how we engage other people. Because I promise you, it will change a church and it will change a church's impact in a community if them, some people can say, you know what, that's a kind church. Those are good people. Those are people that care about others. And then Paul says, let's be blameless. You know, I really love this word blameless. It means that you and I can live without reproach. We can live without disappointment. We can live without disapproval. Now, please hear me. Not only in how we look at others, but I love this part. It's in how we look at ourselves. How many of us live almost in reproach of ourselves? That we're such perfectionists that we don't feel like we ever measure up. Any of you? I'm a recovering perfectionist. Any of you relate to this? It is about you and I can live without feeling like we disappoint everybody. It's like we can look in the mirror in the morning and not find ourselves disapproving with what we see. I want you to know something, friends. There's something powerful. There is something freeing about the amazing forgiveness and redemption that we find in Jesus Christ. You see, you and I can reach a place of blamelessness, but we cannot do it without Jesus and His forgiveness. Because in that forgiveness, He relieves us of the load that we've carried. Some of us for way too long. Listen to what Psalm 32 says. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. Whose sin. He says not only forgiven. Listen to what the psalmist says. Whose sin is literally put out of sight. You don't pull it up. You don't look back on it anymore. You don't dredge it up and carry it with you. He says, oh, what joy for those who record the Lord has cleared of guilt. Whose lives are lived in complete honesty. The psalmist says, when I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away. Any of you know what that's like? Listen, I know what that's like. I groaned all day and night long and day and night. God, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. Because you feel it, don't you? You know when you're out of sync with God. It says, my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. You ought to live in Mississippi. And finally, I confessed all my sins to you. And I stopped trying to hide all my guilt. And I said to myself, like all of us have coming to know Christ. I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And God, you forgave me. And all, all, all my guilt is gone. Hallelujah. You see, my friends... For the angst and the heaviness of guilt to be gone, 
to be removed. It comes through the grace and the mercy and the endless love of a God expressed through His Son and His gift, Jesus Christ. You see, Paul says that you and I as believers, we should live differently. We should be holy. We should be righteous. We should be blameless. We need to walk differently because we're not carrying the burdens that everybody else is carrying. Our lives are to be different. I, I, I read a story this week about a minister who had just passed away and he's standing at the pearly gates waiting to get into heaven. And ahead of him is a guy dressed in sunshade, the real dark sunshades. And he's got a loud flowered t-shirt on. He's got a leather jacket and he's wearing tethered jeans. And St. Peter says to this guy, who are you so that I may know whether or not you may enter the kingdom of heaven? And the guy replies, I'm Joe Cohen. I'm a taxi driver in New York City. That wasn't bad for a southern guy, you got to admit. <laughs> and St. Peter consults his list and he looks up and he smiles and he says, Joe, take this silken robe. Take your golden staff and enter the kingdom of heaven the taxi driver smiles and walks right under those pearly gates with his silk robe and his golden staff. And I want you to know at this time, the minister is feeling pretty good about his odds. And St. Peter says, and who are you? And he stands very erect and prompt. Speaks in this loud, pastoral, preachy voice. I don't have one of those or I'd use it. He says, I am Joseph Snow. Pastor of St. Mary's for the last 43 years. And St. Peter just picks up his list and looks. And he says, take this cotton robe and this wooden staff and enter the kingdom of heaven. And the pastor takes a staff and then he thinks about it for a moment and he says, wait just a minute. That guy's a taxi driver. He gets a silken robe and a golden staff. I have pastored for 43 years and you give me a wooden staff and an old cotton robe? And Peter says, well, it's not, it's not about how long you've been there. We want to know what have you done there. We believe there should be some fruit. We should be, believe that your faith and your life should make a difference. And when we looked back over everything, we found out that when you preached, people slept. And while he drove, people prayed. <laughs> so, be, so be thankful for your wooden staff. Okay, really silly story. To make a very important point, just, li just listen to me. Friends, there ought to be some difference. There ought to be some fruit born in the way you and I live our lives. Paul says, listen, you want to go forward in your faith? Then put these three things in your lives. Let's you and I catalyst. Let, let's be holy in the way that we're committed in setting, our side, side, setting ourselves aside for Christ. Let's be different because Jesus made us different, not so we can try to throw it in people's face. Let's love people the way we want to be loved. Let's be kind. Let's be good. Let's be generous. Let's be gracious. Let's don't be those people who are critical all the time. 
And let's be forgiven. And let's walk differently because we are forgiven. And let's quit dragging around old burdens that we don't have to carry anymore. And then Paul says we not only need to have this, but you and I need to start encouraging each other. And I want to tell you something, Catalyst, I think you do this. But he says, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his children. Now, remember, last week we studied and, and Paul likened himself to how a mother cared for her children. Now he's talking about how a father cares for his children. And notice what he says. He encourages them, he comforts them, and he urges them. And notice the phrase, because this is where we get the title of this series. He says, and we encourage you to live lives worthy of God. You see, Paul says that you and I need to be encouragers to, to one another. That word means that we need to be whispering, encouraging words. Don't you like that? Do you remember when you held your baby? I mean, honestly, do you remember when you first held your baby and you would whisper in their ears at night, Mommy loves you. Daddy loves you. God loves you. God's got great plans for your lives. Paul says that shouldn't stop when we're children. Paul says you and I need to speak like that to each other. And we need to be encouragers in the faith. The word can even mean, honestly, it means that you can exhort and you can also admonish. How many of us have done this with our children? But he says, this is what I want you to know. You need to always do this with a sense of encouragement, not a sense of discouragement. I mean, have you ever met somebody who really thought their spiritual gift was to be critical in the life of the church? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, have, I have found people who have exceeded, exceeded in that gift. And Paul said, I want you to know it has, has no place in the body of Christ. Next, he says, you and I should comfort each other. It means to comfort a person in a way that gives strength. And it means that we give stability to people maybe that who have fallen down. It means, what if you, somebody stumbles? What if you and somebody blows it? What if somebody feels like a failure? Paul says, listen, the body of Christ needs to come alongside we need to encourage, we need to give love, we need to give admonishment, we need to give accountability. But he says, I'm going to tell you what, we need to be the people who are there to comfort, to care, and to help people get back up and start walking again. And finally says, we need to urge each other. And what he means is, you and I need to constantly, constantly be urging and encouraging one another to keep moving forward in our faith. To not get stagnant. To not get to a place of complacency. To not think that we're spiritual enough. He says, you know what? There's something important that you and I need to do as the body of Christ. And we need to constantly be beside each other saying, we, we can do this. We can even do more than God has ever imagined. And friends, that's where we are today. We have not arrived. We have not arrived. We are at a place where we're just saying, God, what do you need us to do next? Don Bennett was the first amputee to climb to the summit of Mount Rainier. That's almost 15,000 feet. He did it on one leg and two crutches. But there's a story underlying this story. The team that went with him 
came to an ice field, kind of like our parking lot today. But this was a treacherous point. And it was something that took them over four hours to make their way across. All of the other climbers put on crampons on their boots. If you don't know what those are, those are the spikes that fit on the bottom of our shoes. Honestly, if you read, if you read the last part of Ephesians where it says put on the full armor of God, when he talks about putting on the shoes, that's what was on the bottom of them. Spikes to give them solidarity, to give them solid footing. But this, for Don, was almost unachievable. He literally finally got down on his knees and began to crawl across. But that's when something happened. Because there was somebody else on this trip and it was his young teenage daughter, Kathy. And when she saw what was happening to her dad, she herself crawled out onto the ice ledge by him. And she began to shout in his ear, You can do this, Dad. You're the best dad in the world. You can do this. Don't give up. And four hours later, Don Bennett made his way to the top of Mount Rainier. He was interviewed after the climb and he said that it was honestly Kathy's belief in him. It was her verbal encouragement. It was her urging. He said that touched something deep Inside my heart and inside my soul. And he said, in doing so, she strengthened my resolve. She strengthened my commitment to finish the journey. <laughs> Catalyst, I want to share with you one of the reasons why God has brought us all together in this amazing place. It is so we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, can work to better each other's lives in the good, in the bad, in the highs, and the lows. That we will bring encouragement, that we will bring comfort, and that we will urge each other on in this journey of faith. Catalyst, please hear me. We are the church. And God has a great future for us to journey along together. And may we never, ever, ever forget. May we never, ever take it for granted. And may we always, always be willing to come alongside each other in the good and the bad and say this, you can do this. We will go forward together. We will make a difference for Jesus because I promise you, God has not brought us here without that intent in mind. Amen and amen. We're going to close this service by sharing communion together. The team, the worship team can come on up.
Let's just remember some things as we reflect. The bread represents the body of Jesus. Listen, this is God's supreme sacrifice, His Son. And it's Jesus' supreme sacrifice, the cross. There was a great price of obedience, a a great price of supreme love paid for you and me. When we eat the bread, we, we remember the price paid. But the cup represents the blood of Christ shared for us. It's all about a new covenant. It's about a a new relationship made possible by Jesus. See, the Old Testament, everything was arbitrated by the priest on behalf of the people. And don't you love to see this? This is the best part of the day for me right now. But this personal relationship with Christ, I don't know about you, but it still awes me today. And I want to tell you what this represents and why it's so awing to me. Because it represents new beginnings. It represents a fresh start. It represents a new life. Made possible by His forgiveness and His redemption. And Jesus willingly, He obediently, He lovingly became the sacrifice for our sins to provide for us a new life in Him. Let us this day, Catalyst, remember that. But I want to tell you, going to have a little different flavor today as we take this. Because today, I don't want us to end on reflection. We're going to end on celebration. We're going to sing a song that's not naturally used for communion, but it's called Raise a Hallelujah. And I don't know about you, but I'm not so certain that after 10 years, we shouldn't raise a hallelujah. Peterson says we tip our cups to the Lord. You've already been given the elements. They were in your chair. I hope you haven't already eaten them as a snack. (laughs) But this will be the only time probably in the history of the church that you'll be asked to pop the top and to remove the elements. But while we stand and sing, I want you to go ahead and get prepared. Our students, our children are already in here. This is a great day, Catalyst. This is a day to celebrate. This is a day to remember what Jesus has done for us and how blessed we truly are. So let's stand and let's raise a hallelujah to Him. Please hold the juice, hold the bread. I will come back up. We will partake together. I already hear a little vibe starting, don't you? Listen, let's praise the Lord. Thank you, Catalyst, for being here today.